Finnovate showcases cutting-edge banking and financial technology through a global conference series featuring short-form demos and thought leadership. Now, the conversation continues on the Finnovate podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Finnovate podcast. Joining me today, we have Dan Kimmerling, founder and managing partner of Desiens. Dan, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. The pleasure is mine. Excellent. So to start, can you give us just some background on yourself and where Desiens is coming from? Of course. You know, on the personal side, I was born and raised in New Jersey, moved to Silicon Valley in 2006 to be, you know, one of the first employees at TechCrunch. After we sold that business to, uh, to AOL, I fell down the fintech rabbit hole and started Standard Treasury, which was one of the very first banking as a service companies. We ended up selling that business successfully to Silicon Valley Bank. And then I sat on the executive team there for a number of years before starting Desians in 2017. Yeah. And so Desians, uh, for people who haven't heard of it before, is a venture capital firm, which you are obviously working with a number of companies in the fintech space. I'd like to start by talking about what's happening in the VC space right now in fintech, because from, from our side at Finnovate, we're seeing you know valuations falling, overall funding going down. But it also looks like, uh, from our perspective, that we're seeing a greater number of early stage and seed stage companies who are getting funding than we saw maybe in 2018 and 2019. Does that line up with what you're seeing on your side as well? Yeah, what I would say is we have seen no slowdown in the level of entrepreneurial behavior and activity. It seems, broadly speaking, like people are excited to start new businesses. And if you go back to at least the 1970s, there seems to be relatively little relationship between macroeconomic behavior and entrepreneurial dynamism. At the same time, it is very clear that the level of capital coming into the sector is slowing down but we believe that that is mostly related to decreasing number of very large late stage financiers. And that's really, I think, a huge part of it is that these mega financings distort the overall data because the data does not reflect the number of rounds happening. The data really reflects the size of the rounds happening. So the $100 million, $250 million, $500 million financings are highly distorted. Sure. Yeah. No, I think you see that, um, you know, only a couple of those really big financing can have really uh, outsized influence on, you know, the total amount of money going into the space. And so, you know, that's probably not the metric to look at when people say, how's the VC market looking? One of the first and easy stats to pull is how much money went into the space. But that is maybe a slightly misleading number. More accurately is to look at this number that you're talking about, which is how many deals are getting funded. How many companies are are we seeing that can kind of get that first bit? And um, you know that's the overall entrepreneurial traction. And it's nice to hear that you know, from your standpoint, you're seeing a really strong uh, market on that side of the equation. You know what we tend to track is overall number of deals that come to Desians in any given year, and the number of deals that we do per year. That's sort of how we think about measurement of the overall health of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And, you know, for the last five or so years, we have seen on average something around 900 opportunities per year. And we've done every year on average 3.6 deals. 
which works out to like one net new deal per quarter. And uh, you've closed two transactions year to date, and it's, uh, you know, end of August. So, you know, I think that puts us pretty squarely down the middle of doing somewhere around 3.6 deals before the year wraps up. And, you know, we really believe that consistency, it's essential in venture capital. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think it's nice that you're tracking the stats that closely and can point to, you know, really on the paper, hey, look, this is what the numbers say. The numbers don't lie. Um, you know, another thing that we've noticed from our side is that there appear to be more companies gaining traction outside of the traditional innovation hotspots on the two coasts. You know, obviously that would be kind of the Bay Area and on the Eastern Seaboard. What do you think is driving that proliferation of startup activity kind of outside of those traditional areas? Well, there's definitely some proliferation of and diffusion of talent and knowledge, right? You used to have to move to innovation hubs to learn how to find product market, to create products, find product market fit, scale those products, et cetera. Clearly, uh, doing podcasts like yours, writing blog posts has made it less necessary to gain those, that critical knowledge. It's also clear that remote work is having some impact. I think what we're seeing, though, more than anything, is that people want to work in hybrid ways. They want some in person. They want some remote. And what's clear is that they don't feel like they have to live in uh, traditionally very high-priced innovation hubs like the Bay Area or New York. You know, most the most obvious example that I could point to would be Miami. You know, when I started in the tech sector, which was in 2006, Miami was not a, a relevant, you know, was not uh, on the map. Now, I would say it's one of the most important tech economies, you know, I would put it uh, probably as the third most important tech economy right after the New York metropolitan area. So clearly something is happening there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's not just places like Miami, you know, certainly Austin has always been a place where there's a lot of innovation, but we're seeing companies coming out of really small markets in some cases, you know, in, in Midwestern US. And I think, you know, the proliferation of talent is something which uh, would make a lot of sense there. And and I also think that the idea that a lot of the advice that companies need to be successful and looking at where that advice is coming um, is, is also a huge part of it. You know, Drive has done an incredible job advocating for investing outside of core hubs. TTV has done an incredible job advocating for Atlanta, as an example. So I think what, and capital chases opportunity, not the other way around. And so as there are, and it, it, this becomes a virtuous cycle, as there's more innovation outside of core innovation hubs, capital will go to those markets, which kind of reinforces this idea that you don't have to be in innovation hubs to attract talent and gain the skills necessary. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So um, I, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the opportunities you're seeing in the financial inclusion space. I know one of your ingest, investments is with Chipper Cash, a company that's doing amazing things in Africa. Um, firstly, can you just talk a little bit about Chipper Cash and what it is that they do? You know, I think one way to think about Chipper Cash is as maybe like Square Cash app for Africa. We created a product that lets people easily send money domestically and across border. And over time, we've expanded that uh, set of capabilities to help people save, spend, 
send uh, and invest their capital across our geographies. Cool. So um, obviously, there's so much amazing work to be done, and in the success that Chipper Cash has had. Um, sets them apart and gives them this opportunity to go and make a, a really big impact in a lot of people's day-to-day lives. How did Chipper pop up on your radar? Was that something, um, you know, the type of innovation that you were actively seeking out as an investor? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, as with all things, there's a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work. You know, before I had invested in Chipper, I'd been an investor in Splitwise, which uh, is another fintech that has some of this peer-to-peer money movement uh, dimensions on it. I'd also been an advisor to another African fintech called Tawa. And so I, you know, I'd seen similar patterns in other contexts. And so uh, one of my LPs referred me to Chipper. And, and then I met Pam Saranjogi, the CEO, and, and Majid, the, pres- the co-founder and president. And I was like instantly smitten with them. And they are incredible entrepreneurs, some of the very best I've worked with. And so I think it was about the quality of the founding team, obviously, and uh, being in the right place at the right time with a prepared mind. Yeah. So is that financial inclusion space something which is uh, a key area for you at Desiens? You know, we always want to make sure that we are having positive social impact, for sure. Increasing accessibility to financial services is clearly one way we can have deeply positive social impact. You know, that could be abroad, of course. But just this morning, I was reading that 20% of Americans still don't have access to financial services. And so it's clear that even in the United States, there's still much more to go. And that's just talking about raw accessibility. We're not even talking about having accessibility to products which are specifically tailored to, uh, you know, the needs and wants of them. You know, we've done highly specialized financial services. I'll give you an example. We, a number of years ago, we invested in a company called TrueLink Financial. And the core thesis behind TrueLink Financial is that the needs of people with disabilities are not well served. And could we build a financial institution that serves the needs of individuals with disabilities? And, you know, just like a small example, But I think when you think about financial inclusion, financial accessibility, I think you also need to make sure that people are in products which are well served to their specialized needs. And it is clear that there are lots of different kinds of specialized needs, and the internet creates an opportunity to go build financial institutions that serve them not just adequately, but well or excellently. Yeah, yeah. So are, are there any particular opportunities that you're looking at at this point? You know, um, any other, obviously, you don't want to talk about potential fundings before um, they happen. But um, are you, are there any particular spaces that um, you think are really interesting that you're kind of looking at for a potential next big investment for yourselves? Yeah, I mean, I think a thing that's really top of our mind is this question around what is the relationship between financial services and moving towards a more decarbonized global economy. If you look at it historically, there's been a very tight relationship between financial services and the global industrialized economy. JP Morgan Chase, for example, was uh, JP Morgan the man was a large financier of the railroads, the steel industry, coal, etc. And so then the question becomes in the 20, you know, in this century as we have to retool 
our industrial base to be more sensitive to the climatological impact. What are the new and novel financial institutions that will be created to step into that opportunity? That's really what I think is um, top of mind for us. And, you know, we relatively recently made two investments on that topic. Yeah, and certainly there's no shortage of potential work to be done on that side of the equation. And I think people and companies who are able to focus on that and look for the opportunities there, obviously, will have a lot of open ocean to go and and try and swim into, which I think um, is obviously a really good thing as well. So, um, you know, we have time for one more question. And I'd like to finish by kind of zooming back out, looking at that really high level. What do you think the next two or three years will look like from a VC standpoint? Are there any you know big shifts that you expect to see coming? Or do you think we're you know in a place where things will be fairly steady? <laughs> um, I think the only thing that, you know, there's this uh, adage that man plans, but God laughs. And so, you know, I, I never want to predict stability. Change is really the only constant. And so, you know, at Destians, we're really prepared you know, we're, we've kind of built ourselves and the organization really as a, a way to thrive in volatility. Volatility is the norm, not the exception. The question is, how do we thrive in that environment? Right? Like uh, assuming calm seas, assuming good weather, that, that's not a good way to live. The best way to live is to assume that the seas will be rough and there will be storms and know how to thrive in all environments. So what do I think the next couple of years have? I have no idea. What I know is that we're prepared for all seasons, and we're thankful to partner with a small number of entrepreneurs that are excited to be on the journey with us. And we're thankful that uh, our LPs want to continue to support that work. And what I do know is that financial services is one of the most dynamic categories. And I think it is, with good reason, an incredible place to to work and to innovate on. Yeah, excellent. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Um, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with me. Appreciate it. And would encourage anybody listening to check out the Desians portfolio, look into Chipper Cash, find out more about what that amazing company is doing. Um, Really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. The pleasure has been mine. The Finnovate podcast is produced by Informa Connect in association with Provoke.fm Media. Check out Finnovate.com for information on Finnovate's upcoming shows and to learn how you can get involved. The discount code Finnovate Podcast will save you 20% on tickets to all of our events. And you can email us at info at for information on sponsoring, speaking, or demoing. Thanks for listening.